Well, one of the concepts that uh, believers often struggle with when they first get saved is, uh, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean that I've been declared holy and yet I still find that I sin? And, and how do I fix that? And there's a, an old Jewish fable that I, I like to use to explain what that process is like. It's called the, the prince under the table. Perhaps you've heard me mention it before. The, there was a king of, of a country and he had a son who was a prince and the, he wanted his son to learn the business of ruling and so wanted to include him on the meetings that he would have with his advisors and governors of the country. And so he would have his, this young man come in to join them. The problem is that the prince um, thought that he was a rooster. The prince thought that he himself was a rooster. And so he was not exactly the type of person you wanted to put in front of the public. But the, the king felt it was time that he learnt to behave like a prince. And so he invited him in. So they called him in from outside where he was uh, out in the garden, naked, pecking around, looking for worms. And they brought him in and he refused to sit on a chair because roosters don't do that. So he went under the table. And this was, of course, very embarrassing to the king and very distressing to all of the king's counselors. And so they, they asked the wise men in the nation to come and see if they could do something about it. And one at a time, the wise men would try to explain to this prince that he's not a rooster, that he is a human being, that he's a prince, and so he needs to act like one. But that didn't work because he would just kind of peck at them and scamper away. Um, and this went over and on and on and on and over and over and over. These people came trying to explain to him that he's not a rooster, but he just didn't believe them. Until one day, a, a wise old man said he was going to try something a little different. So he came in to the meeting with the king and his counselors and the prince. And this man went under the table with the prince and sat there and was also pecking around and scratching and acting like a rooster and explained to the prince, I too am a rooster and I can tell that you are a rooster um, and that's okay. And the king wasn't sure where this was heading. But the next time there was a meeting, the, the young man was called in again and went under the table. And the old man came in and sat under the table with him as well. And this time he had a pair of trousers with him. And he said, look, you're definitely a rooster, as am I. We can all tell that you're a rooster. But there's no reason why a rooster can't wear a pair of pants, right? And so the prince agreed and put on the trousers. And the next time there was a meeting, the same thing happened. And this time the old man climbed under the table and, and had with him a shirt and said, look, we all know that you're a rooster, but there's nothing to say that a rooster can't wear a shirt with his pants. And the prince agreed. And this went on with socks and shoes and a belt and a jacket and a tie. And eventually he was combing his hair and shaving. And, and this just kept on going until one day the old man said to him, look, we all know that you're a rooster, but... There's nothing to say that a rooster can't behave like a prince. Why don't you come and sit at the table and add your wisdom to the ruling of the kingdom? And slowly over the years, the prince grew into his position and became what he was. He was able to rule. Every once in a while, he would go peck for worms, but then remind himself that he was now a prince and he needed to behave like one. And in the same way, there is a doctrine in Scripture that teaches that you are declared a certain position in Christ, and yet you still act like a rooster. I mean, it's kind of what it says. We'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll see how close I got. Now, last week we saw how 
after meeting Peter at the front door, he doesn't even make any small talk or offer you hors d'oeuvres if he invites you over for dinner. He meets you at the front door with a piece of steak that he stuffs in your mouth and says, chew first, eat later, or we'll chat later, right? And, and that's what his greeting is like. Right in the very first opening verses of, of him just introducing himself and, and greeting us at the door of his epistle, he's already introduced some of the meatiest, toughest doctrines in all of the Bible, uh, especially election. It's one of the things, foreknowledge, we've spoken about predestination and all those difficult concepts that Christians over the ages have been wrestling with and trying to understand. And Peter just throws that out in the, hey, how you're doing part of the, the message. But there's a reason for that. Remember that we saw in our introductory message that Peter is writing this to a group of Gentile Christians, so non-Jewish Christians, that have been expelled from where they were living under the persecution of the emperor. And so now they're living scattered abroad. They are exiles from their home country, but they're also, in a sense, spiritual exiles too. They're, they're metaphorical exiles, as we all are. And so Peter will keep that theme going, that we're all foreigners, we're all strangers and aliens in this world because we are away from our true home, which is in heaven. And they are under persecution. They have lost things, uh, their homes, they've, they've lost their homeland. And so he wants to give them hope that even though they may suffer even more in the coming years, that they know that God has not forgotten them, that they have been chosen by God, that he already knew that they would be saved, that he already knew the trials that they would go through and that he would be with them in that and that they ought not to feel that their difficulty they're going through is a sign that God is displeased with them or that he has abandoned them. And that's why even in his introduction, even in his greeting, he's giving us this hope because the best anesthetic for the pain of suffering is hope that it will one day be over. And so this is what Peter is talking about. So let's read again. First uh, Peter chapter 1, just the first couple of verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what we call modern-day Turkey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we've dealt with the elect exiles last week. We looked at the foreknowledge of God this week. We're going to be looking at the next phrase there in the sanctification of the Spirit. So we looked at the four foundation stones of um, salvation that Peter is using to describe salvation. We saw the plan of salvation. We looked at that last week and that the plan of salvation originates with God. In, in his foreknowledge and in his election. This week, we're going to look at the path of salvation, which is holiness, what it means to become what we are. And then in the weeks to come, we will look at the purpose of salvation, which, you know, spoiler alert, it's in the text, obedience to Jesus Christ, and the promise of salvation, the covenant, which has to do with the sprinkling with his blood. And then we'll be done with the greeting and we can get into the lessons that Peter wants to teach us. So the path of salvation. Uh, in verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So this is a, the next course that Peter offers us is just as meaty as the first course. It's just as difficult to chew and swallow. It, it takes a lot of um, thinking about what it is, but it's very practical. Unlike 
I mean, I don't want to say unlike, but more than foreknowledge and election, which tends to be, let's face it, quite a theoretical, theological, philosophical discussion about how God knew who he was going to choose before they were born and how that all works together. That's more of a theoretical discussion. I mean, it has practical implications. But the doctrine of sanctification is very practical. It affects the way you do your hair. It affects the length of your skirt. It affects uh, what time you wake up in the morning. It affects the kind of movies that you will watch. It affects how you spend your money. It affects the types of friends that you have, the types of jokes that you laugh at, the types of things that you eat and drink, and how much of those things. I mean, this affects your life as a Christian, the doctrine of sanctification. So we're going to look at that doctrine and just four aspects of it this morning. The nature of sanctification, like what is it? The spectrum of sanctification. We'll see that some people are, let's face it, more holy than others. Um, the certainty of salvation, whose job is it to make sure that we are, uh, not salvation, sanctification, whose job is it to make sure we're sanctified, and then pitfalls of sanctification, some of the issues that come up when Christians try to think about this. So the word sanctification, let's talk about the nature of sanctification. What does it mean? It means to be set apart. Sanctification is the process of being set apart unto something else, uh, being holy. Being made holy, that's what that word means. Uh, you might have heard it at a wedding. They talk about the sanctity of marriage, right? The sanctity of marriage means that it is special, that it's different. Um, maybe in the Old Testament, you've seen the nation of Israel was called to be holy, God said, for I am holy. The word holy and sanctification, so the word English word sanctification comes from the Latin sanctos which means holy. So whenever I say holy or sanctified, it's kind of the same, it's the same word. There's synonyms. And in the Old Testament, you have Israel that is isolated from the rest of the world by God. So remember, um, there's you know, Adam and Eve, then there's Noah and his eight kids, and then there's like uh, lots of people all over the world, and then God chooses one of them. He elects Abraham. And he says, out of you, I'm going to make this nation. And out of this nation will come a blessing for all the nations of the earth. And Abraham didn't know exactly what that meant. But we do now because we've read the Old Testament. So Abraham has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 12 sons, who has lots and lots of descendants. And they become the Jewish nation, is what we call them today, the Israelites. Um, and so because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's why his descendants are called Israelites, right? So Jacob's descendants, Abraham's descendants, this group of people... When Moses comes along, you know, those people, Joseph and his dream coat, they go to um, Egypt, and then his brothers come into Egypt, and then they stay there, and then they multiply, and then there's a new pharaoh, and he makes them slaves, and then one of them, you know, uh, runs away. He becomes the queen's son. That's Moses. He runs away. He comes back 40 years later, and he leads them through the Dead Sea. Okay, you, you with me? Okay, all of that happened. So the, this group of people became slaves in Egypt. They come back into the promised land that was promised to Abraham. That's what we're doing in the book of Joshua and Judges and that. Okay, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah, uh, Moses. Before they go into the promised land, Moses gets a command from God. Actually, he gets 613 commands from God, um, 10 of which are the most popular. But uh, that Mosaic law was designed to make Israel different from the other nations, to set them apart. So they couldn't shave the corners of their 
beard, and they couldn't wear mixed fabric. They had to wear, you know, pure linen or whatever. They, they couldn't um, eat shellfish. Um, they could only eat fish that had scales on them, so they couldn't eat shark, not that they would, but you know what I'm saying. So there were certain foods that they couldn't eat. They couldn't eat pork, and they had to worship in a certain way, and they had to offer in a certain type of incense, and they had to have a high priest, and he had to dress a certain way. And they were just, they were just weird people compared to everyone around them, in a good way. They, they were different. They were special. They were set apart. They were holy. And the whole point of them being different from the other nations is so that God could bless them and everyone would know that there was something different about this group of people that was obeying God. So that concept of sanctification, setting them aside, they had certain um, uh, pots and pans that were sanctified, that were holy. They had certain days that were holy. They had certain clothes that were holy. And it was just kept teaching them this concept of there's certain things that are special and set aside. Now you get into the New Testament... And there's no longer a nation like that. And we're going to get into that with uh, First Peter. Once you Gentiles were not a nation, but now you are. Uh, you were a royal priesthood. In fact, Leviticus 11.44 calls Israel that. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So in Leviticus 11, the nation was told to be holy. And in Exodus 19, verse 6, it says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The whole nation was to be set aside for God's purposes. They were set aside in language and diet and culture and country and ceremonies. In the New Testament, that national identity has changed. And we all become spiritual Israelites, irrespective of what country you were born in. And, but we are also still holy not in the same way as they were under the law of Moses. And so maybe if you're talking to somebody, they say, you Christians, you just pick and choose which part of the Bible you want to obey. I've seen you eat that ham sandwich before. You don't obey the Old Testament. You just obey the laws you like. And you know in your heart that that's true. Because, I mean, I can see you're wearing polyester, some of you. That's a mixed fabric. Um, you know, so you're like, well, why is that okay? Why do I not have to stone my kids when they're disobedient like we did in the Old Testament? It's not always a bad idea, but uh, it's, it's illegal right now. So, so which laws do we keep and which don't we? So it's this, this understanding that Israel had those laws to keep them separate. We're no longer under those laws at all. We don't have the civil laws that make us a nation called Israel. But that doesn't mean that we're just like, woohoo, we're free to do whatever we want now. No, we're under a new law. We're not under the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses on Sinai. We're under the new covenant, Jesus said. Remember when he did communion? This is the new covenant in my blood. So we are a new covenant with new laws. And some of them overlap. We're still not allowed to murder people, for example. But some of them are completely different. Now, 19th century commentator John Brown, he wrote this. The people of God, speaking of Christians, under the new dispensation are also separated from the rest of mankind, but their separation is of a spiritual kind, separated in their sentiments and affections, unquote. In other words, the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant, the way you were holy, was very much an external symbol of what was happening internally. 
what you wear and what you eat and how you worship and where you live and all those things. In the New Testament, it's, it's spiritual. It's not, what, it's not like we all have to wear the same clothes and shave the same way and eat the same food, but we all have spiritual desires and priorities and attitudes that have been changed by the Holy Spirit that make us different from the rest of the world. That's why Christians have different views about the things that are going on in the politics of the world. We just have different views. Why? Because our views are informed by the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. And so we have different ways of behaving. We have different views on marriage and on parenting and on purity and on giving and on um, all sorts of things, worship. And Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, a hypocrite may leave sin but still loves it. Like a serpent that sheds its skin but keeps its sting. But a sanctified person not only leaves sin, but loathes it. So we're not only stopping doing the sin, but we actually hate that sin. Otherwise it becomes external. And like a, a snake sheds its skin, but it can still bite. That's what he's saying, you know, right? We don't just shed our sin, we hate our sin. We're completely new people. This is what sanctification is about. Now, being holy doesn't mean you have to live in a monastery, you have to wear a you know, camel hair robe, you take a vow of poverty, take a vow of celibacy. But holiness is the most practical area of your life. It's where the theory of following Jesus meets the practice of what you actually do every day. It's about sinning less and being more godly. So Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So last week we looked at foreknowledge and predestination, and, and that's kind of God's side of things. That's the plan of redemption, uh, salvation. Now we look at the path of salvation. And even in Romans 8, the same people that he foreknew and predestined what did he predestine them to do? Well, to become conformed to the image of his son. What that means is that you will slowly over time as a Christian become more and more like Jesus. You'll be conformed to his image. Uh, you know, obviously not physically. Spiritually, you'll become more Christ-like. You know what it's like if you... New believers often, you know, they, they have these radical conversions and they're like, oh my goodness... All the sin that I was in, I, I turn my back on it, and they get baptized, and, and they're so excited. They're like, I, I hate my sin, and, and uh, the way I used to speak, and the way I used to dress, and the, the things that I loved, and the things I used to do, I'm just disgusted by them, and, and I love living in Christ. And then they, they wake up in the morning, and they hit the snooze button 10 times, and then they cuss at their alarm and throw it at their cat, and, and then they speed to work, and then you know, they get there, and they steal money out of the till again, and then they, they're gossiping. And, and that night, they go to Bible study, and they hear about Christ and how wonderful he is, and how they've been set free on their sins, and they think, oh my goodness, am I even saved? Has anyone yet? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Has anyone ever had that thought of like, I look around and other people seem to be just, you know, they're, they're nailing this Christianity thing. Me? I'm doing stuff that if people knew about, they would say, well, you're just not a Christian. And that can be confusing because sometimes it does mean that you're not a Christian. So 
what's the difference? There's Christians that are sinning and there's non-Christians that they're sinning. And in a country like ours where there's freedom of religion and you don't have to go to jail for being a Christian, most people just call themselves Christian. That's becoming less and less popular, but certainly our parents' generation grew up in a world where everybody you know, everybody in town, especially in the South or in the Bible Belt, everybody calls themselves a Christian. And some are acting like Christians and some aren't, but even the ones who are acting like Christians, the real Christians, even they sometimes feel like they're not acting like Christians. So this is why it's a confusing doctrine, but this is why it's such an important one. So that it helps you become more like Christ and it helps you evaluate where you stand with Christ. Now, there are some sins. There are some sins that you can stop overnight. As soon as you become a believer, you realize that there's sin, you just stop them. This happens when a person goes from, you know, they're, they're worshiping Buddha, and then they become a Christian. Well, they stop worshiping Buddha just overnight. They just decide, oh, that's not a real God. This is the real God, right? Or, you know, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. You guys live together, and then you find out, oh, no, that's not what God wants out of marriage. Uh, so we, we have to repent of that immediately. And you, you can just stop that. Um, you're a bank robber by profession. And uh, you steal, you know, thousands of dollars a couple of times a week. You become a Christian. You repent of thievery. You don't keep robbing banks. You don't cut down on the amount of banks you rob. Last week I robbed four. This week I only robbed one. It's sanctification. No. There's some sins you just stop once you know they're wrong. But then there's other sins that, let's just face it, they're just, they don't come with an on-off switch. They're just hard to get rid of. Douglas Wilson says it's like, it's the difference between like, if you have mud on your hands and you wash it off versus if you have pine sap on your hands. You know, you, you're going to have to wash that a lot before it's all completely off. And just when you think it's all off, you notice, why is that piece of paper still sticking to my finger? Oh, I must still have some pine sap on it, right? Sins like swearing and taking the Lord's name in vain. If you've been doing that 40 years of your life and you get saved and you hit your thumb with a hammer or you get cut off in traffic, your habit is to cuss. Sins like gossip. You always catch up on the office news at the water cooler every day. Now you're saved and you're still doing that. Uh, sins like lust. Wouldn't that be fun to just be able to say, you know, I'm just going to stop lusting forever. Flip a switch. It just doesn't work that way, right? Coveting. If, if you've been jealous of your brother-in-law who makes more money than you for you know 10 years and you suddenly become a christian sometimes the lord delivers you from that and you can just turn your back on it but sometimes it's it's difficult you're still coveting you're still jealous or whatever it is fits of anger you know there's lots of sins but the difference is what do i think about that now what do i do about that now you know the the unbelieving response is Everybody lusts, so I guess it's okay. The unbelieving response is, well, I, I'm just an angry person. I'm just a passionate person. So I'm going to get passionate at people when they cut me off in traffic, you know, or whatever it is. As soon as you start justifying your sin, rationalizing your sin, embracing your sin, that's a, that's a red flag. But if you catch yourself and you cuss 40 times yesterday and you've been working on it so hard and filling your mind with verses like Ephesians 4.29, let no um, corrupt speech come out of my mouth, but only that which is good for edification, and I've repeated that, and then, and then today I only cussed 32 times. That's progress. Eventually you'll get to the point where this is out of your life. 
certain life-dominating sins, uh, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, homosexuality, these types of sins, you know, pornography addiction, these types of sins, they, they take a while, but if you're not seeing any progress towards Christ-likeness, you don't have assurance that you're even a Christian because you're not holy. You're not becoming more holy. So the nature of sanctification is that it is progressive. Now, that's kind of controversial, just in case you go and Google this. Some people say it's, it's instantaneous, and other people say that it's progressive, and the Bible says it's both. There is a sense in which you are instantly set apart. You are instantly made holy, declared righteous, completely you are a Christian. When God looks in your account, he sees Christ's righteousness. But then there's the become what you are part of Christianity. You've been declared a prince, but why are you pecking for worms outside like a rooster? Put on some pants. Sit at the table. This is going to take a while, but eventually you're going to become what you are. So that's the nature of sanctification. But by necessity, this brings us to our second point, the spectrum of sanctification. By necessity, if... So follow my logic here. If since sanctification, becoming holy, is a progressive part of your salvation you slowly become more mature. Then the person in the pew next to you is also progressively becoming more mature, more like Christ. And, and everyone is. Doesn't it then just follow that you're going to have people who are more like Christ than others? Of course. And in an ideal world, it would be simple. It would be the new believers are the least like Christ and the old believers are the most like Christ, right? Because you've been a believer longer. Unfortunately, that doesn't always work out. You've met Christians that have been Christians for 30 years and they're still gossiping as much as they were when they were first saved. Maybe a little bit less. Uh, they've been a Christian for 20 years, but they're still whatever. You know, bad stewards of their money and health. They've been Christians for five years, but their marriage is as bad as ever. Wh whatever it is. So wh what's going on there? Whereas you have new believers... And man, they're just reading their Bible and they're memorizing verses and they're going to five Bible studies a week and they're just like serving everywhere. And, you know, a year or two later, they're, they're mature. It's like, man, this person's only been saved two, three years, but they want to go into ministry and we think that's a good idea. This person's been saved 30 years and wants to go into ministry and you're like, well, maybe you need to work on that cussing because you cuss from the pulpit, you're going to get fired, you know? <laughs> so, so what is it? Well... The spectrum of sanctification, these people who, are, who have been Christians for a long time and are still immature, they're like the guy in James 1 verse 23, a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. James 1 23, you have this concept. Don't be a hearer of the word only, but a doer of the word. A person who's a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word is like a person who looks in the mirror and then forgets what they look like. They look in the mirror, they see there's a piece of spinach in their teeth, they go to the kitchen to get a toothpick, and they can't remember what they got the toothpick for. That's what you're like when you come to church, and you hear a passage explained, and you understand it, and you believe it, and you agree with it, and you go home, and you don't do it. 
Doesn't mean you're an unbeliever necessarily, but you're like this guy. You're just, what's the point? What is the point of looking in the mirror and then not brushing your hair? You know, what, what's the point of coming to church and hearing what God says you should do and then not doing it? So you hear a sermon on, you know, we had one on Wednesday on the Good Samaritan. Has that changed the way you view people in need? Um, you hear a sermon about giving to the Lord's work and you're like, yeah, no, that's definitely, this is the thing in the world that needs the most financial support. Did your giving go up? You know, you hear a sermon about um, speaking kindly to people uh, or, you know, husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Does your wife think that you heard that sermon? Did she even know that you heard that sermon? You know, so don't be that guy. Don't be the guy who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. Don't be the person who hears the word week after week after week and then doesn't do the word. You will end up immature. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Be mature. That's a command in Scripture. Stop being a baby. Now, there's nothing wrong with babies. We had one up here today. We love babies. You know what the thing about babies is? When they're hungry, they cry until you feed them. And then they, then they cry until you burp them. And then they're fine until they're hungry again and they cry. But imagine you go into a restaurant and there's a 40-year-old man sitting with his wife and they're waiting for the waitress and she's taking so long to bring the food that he starts crying. And so she shows up, I'm so sorry, here it is. And she starts feeding him and he's like, that's fine. But then he starts crying again and the waitress says, what, what? And says, I need a burp. And then she burps him and he's like, okay. You know what comes next, the diaper change. So if that's happening to a three-month-old, there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal, that's healthy. If that's happening to a 30-year-old, that's weird, Right? I mean, at least we would say that there's something wrong with that person and their maturity. But, but what about Christians? It's okay when new believers are still acting like they, they don't know what's going on because they don't. But then you teach them. And then they read the word and they hear sermons and they're in fellowship groups and they have people praying for them and they get better. But some of you have been Christians for 30, 40 years and you're still acting like a baby, spiritually speaking. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, be infants in evil. There are some things we can be bad at and not know about. You don't have to keep up with what's the latest, whatever's trending out there, because most of that stuff's trash, but you, you need to be mature in your thinking. So where do I get this idea that sanctification is on a spectrum and progressive? I'll give you a verse here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So it's a present, active, continuous process. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So from one degree of glory to another degree of glory, we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are all being conformed to the same image, spiritually. So eventually, we will all be equally perfect, like Christ in our glory. And you're like, when does that happen? 
That's a different doctrine, glorification when you die. But in the meantime, you're, we're all heading towards that. The bullseye is Christ. When you're an unbeliever, you're the dart that misses the board. When you're a new believer, you're the dart hitting on the edge of the board. But you're constantly moving towards the Christ-likeness, and we all are moving towards the Christ-likeness. That's why a healthy church will always have immature believers. Because a healthy church is evangelizing lost people. And lost people get saved, then they're immature believers, by definition. And then our job is to help disciple them and make them more and more mature. Now, if you have a church only of immature believers... That's a problem. That means they're not being fed the right food from the pulpit. And that happens, unfortunately, a lot. We have a whole church of people who are just immature because the pastor's not teaching them what he should from the Word. Or you have a church of, of believers who think that they're mature, but they're not evangelizing the lost, which is a form of immaturity. So if you ever go to visit a church, like let's say you're moving to another town and you're looking for a church and you go and you hear some people in the church gossiping or you uh, hear some person in the church cussing or whatever, don't be like, well, that's an unholy church. If it's a healthy church, you're going to have those people in it. Now, if it's the elders doing those things, it's a different story, right? But you're always going to have people that you think, wow, is that person even a believer? No, that's good that they're here. Okay. So that's the spectrum of sanctification. Let's look at the certainty of sanctification. It's true or false. Nobody's perfect. Oh, I know. You're so scared to answer, and that's good. That's, I've trained you well. It's a trick question. Nobody's perfect. True and false. Well, Jesus is perfect, of course. Well, what about Christians? Are Christians perfect? Are there any perfect Christians? See, the, there's a type of theology called Wesleyan perfectionism that Charles Wesley's followers developed where they believed that you could be instantaneously perfect. Sanctified, not progressively, but instantaneously. So these are Christians who think that they're perfect. They are so much fun to have a conversation with because you get them upset in the conversation and then you say, oh, did you just lose your perfection the way you yelled at me like that? No, I'm... I'm Kind of being facetious there, but that's what Spurgeon would do. He said, if you meet a Wesleyan perfectionist, you should stomp on his toes and see what he does. Um, the, but the way they do that is they redefine sin. They say sin is not something that you do um, unintentionally. Sin can only be done willfully. In other words, if you have a lustful thought, that's not your fault. It popped into your head. It's uh, not how the Bible defines sin. I mean, did Christ have to die for that or not? So... It's the question of position versus practice. Is the prince under the table or is he sitting at the table, right? Now, the certainty of sanctification comes down to this. You, know, you are right with God if you are a Christian. You have been declared righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing more you need to do. You've been forgiven. You've been adopted. You've been cleansed by Christ himself. So that's your position. And so you have a confidence that you, you can't lose your salvation based on how well you're performing today as a Christian because your position is secure in Christ. So why then do we try to be more holy if our holiness is already certain in Christ? And the answer is because we love Christ and we want to respond. And this is what we have been set apart for. We'll get to that next week, for obedience. But the Bible has no problem putting both of these truths next to each other. Philippians 3.12 Paul says, not that I've already attained it, obtained this, or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I'm not perfect. I'm working on it. I'm pressing on. In Romans 7.15, he said, and this is a verse we can all identify with, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I'm a Christian and I want to do righteousness and why do I keep falling into the sin? But the fact that you're having that turmoil is good. It's good that you're fighting it. As long as you're fighting the sin. I, I, the, my favorite kind of thought that helps me understand this is, you know, I've told you about the, you get these people who, they, they have rats as pets. No offense if any of you are, are crazy people. Um, but these people have Rat, like you can buy a long-tailed white rat and keep it in a cage and feed it and look after it and it comes out and they've got some personality apparently and they stroke it and they run around and you can call it and you can train it. Then you get other people, normal people. And what they do is when there's a rat in their house, they put out a trap. They put out some poison. They call the exterminator. And if you hear something scurrying in your ceiling, you have two options. You can feed it or you can kill it. Now, and I'm just joking, if you have a pet rat, that's wonderful. Just don't ever invite me over. Um, <laughs> but now, what kind of person are you when it comes to sin? You know, there's some people that they have pet sins. And they keep those sins at home where nobody else sees those sins. And they feed those sins. And they look after those sins. And those sins are really part of their life. They have an emotional attachment. That is a pet sin. And then you get people who, when they discover that there's that sin in their life, and it is there, the way they talk, whatever, the way they, whatever it is they're struggling with, their lust, or whatever it is. But whenever they hear the scampering of that sin in their life, they set out a trap. They memorize a verse. They confess it to a friend. They, they do what it takes to get rid of it. Do they get rid of their phone? Do they get rid of their computer? Do they stop going to that place where the gossip is happening? Do they stop uh, trolling whatever, Twitter and Facebook or whatever, so that they can gossip and slander. Are they fighting it or are they feeding it? See, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Unbelievers feed their sin. Believers fight their sin. And you might not be able to tell the difference. You walk into someone's house and you see a rat. You don't know. Are they trying to kill that rat or is that their pet rat? In the same way, you, you see somebody sinning. You don't know, is that person feeding that sin? They're an unbeliever or are they fighting that sin? And in a church, we need to be able to help one another fight our sins. And if you see someone with a pet sin, you need to explain to them that sin needs to go. And I'm going to help you get rid of it. So whose work is it to do this? First Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. So this is whose job it is. This is why we have the certainty of sanctification because the spirit in you is working on that. And this happens sometimes in ministry. Um, pastors who have friends who are pastors will talk about, hey, I need some advice of the situation that's going on in my church or they're asking for advice. And one day I was talking to somebody else in ministry and you know, describing a situation and the person said, is it possible that this person's not even a believer? I said, I, I don't know. I mean, they, they claim to be a believer. They, you know, they act like a believer. And, but then that, this person I was speaking to said, 
if they had the Holy Spirit in them, wouldn't they have some progress in this area? And so that was kind of running through my mind as I was going over the sermon. And, and I mean, the sanctification is the sanctification of the Spirit. So if there's no sanctification, what does that tell you about the work of the Spirit? I mean, is the Spirit bad at what he does? Of course not. Is he like asleep at the wheel? Is he on vacation taking a sabbatical? Like, why is the Spirit not helping you in this one particular area of your life? Well, maybe it's because there is no Spirit in you. Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Let me just close with some pitfalls of sanctification. These aren't really in the verse here, but it's just kind of things if you think about what can go wrong in this doctrine of sanctification. The first one is complacency. Complacency is where you feel like, I'm, I'm not going to work on this because I'm already a Christian. Maybe you, you read in the Bible, you read of David's adultery. You know, Peter denied Christ. Or you hear other Christians and the types of sins that they're dealing with. And you think, you know what, I'm saved. Everybody sins. David sinned. Peter sinned. The other Christians sinned. So I'm just going to carry on sinning. So that's a pitfall of sanctification because you might then think it's okay to keep sinning because, well, I'm already declared righteous anyway and everybody sins. So I don't want you to think that. Um, Romans 6, 1 says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Romans 6.1, Paul's saying, how can you say, well, you know, we're, we, will, we might as well just continue to sin and grace will cover it all. No, if you are dead to sin, then how come you're still living in it? So what he's saying there is it's a red flag waving if you think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep on sinning. As soon as you ever think to yourself it's okay to sin, that's bad. That means you've misunderstood something in the Bible. There is nothing in the Bible, I promise you, I've read it all the way through. There's nothing in the Bible that ever says it's ever okay to sin. There is never, ever one exception ever in any situation ever for you to sin and it be okay. Any questions about that? Okay, good. Complacency. Second pitfall, spiritual pride. This is unguardedness. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, one of the things that can happen is in your sanctification, you become so mature and you have such great victory over so many sins over so many years that you get to a point where you think you can't fall into that sin that other people fall into. I can go and watch a movie like that with those kinds of scenes and I'm not going to lust because I've conquered lust. Ooh. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. Spiritual pride. Another pitfall is resignation. Oh, I'll never be able to stop sinning. It's just too hard. Have you ever felt that? I just can't fight this and it just keeps coming back. I'm just going to give up. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Don't give up. God is with you in this. God is he's in you fighting this. He's not giving up. You don't give up. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, even if it takes the rest of your life. Be holy or die trying. Don't stop. And then the final pitfall is legalism. Legalism is when you get so desperate to be holy that instead of working on the heart, you only work on the externals and you come up with rules. And you make a whole bunch of rules to keep you looking ho holy. It's behavior modification. 
you know, I'm, I'm so afraid, of course, suggesting that I never laugh at anything. I don't watch any comedies. I won't. And anyone who tells any joke at any time, I must avoid. That's legalism. You know, people do that. I, I don't go to movies at all. I never watch anything on TV ever. Okay, what you're doing there is you're removing, and, and that's fine if you're at a place where you're doing that, and I've said in the past, make rules for yourself, just don't make them for other people. But one of the pitfalls of sanctification is you start making these rules that are easy for you to keep. So you think that you're sanctified, but you're not. So you start making rules, well, it's easy for me to keep this rule, but, but the rules fall sh short of the standard of Scripture. We've had whole sermons on legalism, so I'm not going to belabor that now. So just in closing, what can I do? What can I actually do? You've told me a whole bunch of stuff not to do. Well, read your Bible. Your Bible is going to help fill your mind with the words of the Spirit. Make a commitment to always, every time you read the Bible, whether it's a proverb or a psalm or an epistle or a narrative, read the Bible until you see something you can apply in your life. Pray for the Spirit to sanctify you. And then view trials in your life as an answer to that prayer. That's something you can do. You want to be more like Jesus? Pray to the Spirit to make you more like Christ. And then when something bad happens to you, you view that as an answer to that prayer. This is a rookie mistake Christians make. Something bad happens to them and they share with the group, please pray that this bad thing goes away. No, you asked us to pray to make you more like Christ. This is making you more like Christ. Because when it wasn't here, you weren't like Christ. So God's trying something different with you. He's bringing the trial. Don't pray that the trial goes away. Pray that you become more like Christ through the trial. So everything from a health trial and a relationship trial or a flat tire or a stubbed toe, anything that happens to you, view it as an opportunity to become more like Christ, as an answer to prayer for the Spirit making you more like Christ. And a final little thing that you can do is read biographies. Read biographies of spiritual men and women. It, it just helps you be in the company of other godly people. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, Paul says. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So read biographies about... I've told you, I, I go through the audio book of Charles Spurgeon's autobiography once a year. I love Charles Spurgeon. Whenever I'm listening to that book, driving around, I always feel really wretched because of just like how godly he is. It's his letters to his wife, and, and it's stuff that he wrote, and articles about him, and all this stuff. And you just start thinking, man, he was always just so godly in his response. Like, I need to be more like that. Get discipled. Read Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney. Start a journal where you keep track. These are all little things that you can do that are going to help you. So that's the nature of sanctification, the spectrum of sanctification, the certainty of sanctification, and the pitfalls. So this week, I want you to pray, reminding yourself and asking God for help to remind you that you are a Christian. You are not a rooster. Now, you are going to act like a rooster this week. And whenever that happens, I want you to remember that even though you're still a sinner, we all know that you're still a sinner, you need to act more like Christ because you have been declared righteous in Christ. Now, ask God for help to become what you are. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for calling us, for choosing us, for saving us. 
We also confess to you that there's so many times every day that we fall short of our calling, that we don't walk worthy of Christ. And we pray that you would help us to become what we are, that we would become Christians. For those who are not believers in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide them to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior who died for them, that by placing their faith in him and the work he did on the cross covers their sin and and that you would declare them righteous and give them the righteousness of Christ and they can begin their journey, their path of sanctification to become what they are. And we pray this all in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.